Amen. Our God has done some amazing and wonderful things for us, and uh, his death and resurrection is certainly the top of them all. Amen. What he purchased for you and I could never be purchased with our human abilities, and uh, he did something amazing for us. And next weekend, we will celebrate the Easter service, this resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to invite your friends, to find somebody to bring out, to be a part. You, you have the ability to invite somebody. Uh, you know, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. Who are you asking? This is the one. In fact, I believe that Easter is one of these times that's even a, a greater opportunity than Christmas is that we can invite our friends and people feel this spiritual need to come and to be a part of. And, and so next week, we're gonna focus on how love never fails. And love never fails. And love will never fail you. Love will never fail your friends. Love will never fail those that you invite. Love never fails. So I encourage you. I mean, let, let's, let's fill the place. Let's overflow the place. Come on, Amen. Come to 9 o'clock service if you can. Be a part of opening up the, a seat for someone and, and just to come and be a part of what God is doing. Uh, God is really doing something amazing and I really feel in my heart that there's something that God is getting ready to birth. He's getting ready to do. There's, he, there's been all sorts of things and it's like the, you know, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All these things that were being put into place and all these things that were happening and everybody didn't see it but Jesus knew what was going on and all of the things that were happening and so he put all of it together and, and God did something. God birthed into this world the opportunity for eternal life. Well, in our lives, there's times and seasons when we know that God is doing something. We know that there's this place where I feel like there's just this pregnancy and God's about ready to give birth to something new. And I feel like God is getting ready to do that. Not just in our church, but in the church. In the place, not just you know, in, in this building, but in the city. And, and God is gonna open doors for those who will. Amen. But the question is this. Where are those who will? Well, there's one hand back there. <laughs> That's the question. You know, the field is white. It's ripe under the harvest. We like that part. Amen. But the workers are few. So what will you do? I'm just rhyming there. <laughs> Anyway, let me start with a story today. On the southern border of the empire of Cyrus, there lived a great chieftain named Cagular, who destroyed, he defeated every detachment that Cyrus's army had, that had been sent to subdue him. Finally, Cyrus amassed his whole army, brought them all together, marched down, surrounded, overwhelmed Cagular's forces, captured him, captured his wife, and brought them back to Cyrus's kingdom to be executed. Well, on the day of their execution, Cagular and his wife, they were brought into Cyrus's chamber. And uh, Cagular, he was a, uh, described as a fine-looking man. He had a noble manner about him. He was a magnificent specimen of a man. And so impressed was Cyrus with his appearance and his nobility that he asked Cagular, he said, what would you do should I spare your life? And he responded by saying, Your Majesty, if you spared my life, I would return to my home and remain your obedient servant as long as I live. Then the king asked, What would you do if I spared the life of your wife? 
Your majesty, if you spared the life of my wife, I would die for you. Well, so the emperor was so moved by Cagular's words and by his nobility and his attitude that he freed them both, returned them and Cagular and his wife to their homeland to, be the, to serve as governor. Well, on arriving home, Cagular began to reminisce with his wife about the experience there and said, did you notice the marble entrance to the palace? He said, did you notice the tapestry on the walls as you went down the corridors to the throne? Did you notice the amazing throne of which the emperor sat? It must have been carved from one big lump of gold. And his wife replied, honestly, I, I really don't remember any of that. Really, Cagular said. Are you kidding? Really? What do you remember? And she looked him in the eye and said, I remember only the face of a man who said he would die for me. Today we're going to talk about a man who did die for you. One who gave his life for you. We're talking today on Palm Sunday. This is the day we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus as he came into Jerusalem. And if you can imagine the day, and many of you, I'm sure, have heard, if, I mean, many of the sermons that you've heard, um, you know, if, if you're not fairly regular, this is one of the three sermons you probably have heard in your life. Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and Christmas. So you know the story. You know the things that went on. This was a day. It was an amazing day. This was a spectacular day. If you can put yourself in the crowd or in that procession, it was an amazing celebration that was going on. In fact, the, they were, the people in Jerusalem were celebrating so much and so wildly and so profoundly that the Word of God says that the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they said in John 12, look how the whole world has gone after him. To them, it looked like the whole world had gone into this wild place of celebrating. And then for the next few days, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders were doing everything they could to try to stop him, to try to trick him, to try to get him to say something, to get him to do something, to get him to respond in such a way that the people would turn against him. They were doing everything they could to cause that to happen. And so you know the story of, of Palm Sunday. You've heard this before. You know the story of the Passion Week. If you don't, dig into your word and find out what the Bible says about that. Yes, I'm going to start challenging you more and more and more with that. You need to be digging into the word, not just depending on everything that I say. Amen. And I'm not going to allow you to be that. You want to find out some of these things? Then dig into the word of God and find out what was going on during this time. But for most, we know the overtone of the story. We know the events of the Passion Week. We, we know that Jesus rode into town on a donkey. I, I preached about that two, three years ago. And, and we went through in detail why that was so important. The people were there and they lined the streets and the palms were out and the people were throwing their jackets into the street. I just, you know, sometimes it reminds me like the back patio when somebody dumps off, you know, 30 loads of clothing for us. It's like clothing everywhere. I can just imagine the wildness that was going on in that time. 
And, and it was because everybody was out, because everybody wanted to crown Jesus as king. They wanted a king. They were like, King Jesus, today's the day. This is the time. The overthrow is underway. Jesus is coming to town. King Jesus. You, you've heard the story. And they think that Jesus is going to go to the palace and, and take the throne. And instead, Jesus goes to the temple and starts to overturn the tables of those who are selling sacrifices. He, instead of going to the throne, he, he goes into the treasury and it's between the time of the triumphal entry and the crucifixion that Jesus was found in the temple treasury watching all of those that were bringing their gifts, making very special note of the Widow who brings the two mites. You, you've heard the story about how Jesus was sending the disciples to prepare a room where they could enjoy the Passover supper together, where, where they could come and, and have the Last Supper. You, you heard the stories about how Jesus wrapped his cloak around himself and got a basin and some water and washed the feet of the disciples. You, you heard the story about the Last Supper. You, you heard the stories of how Jesus, after supper, went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he was there in that time of prayer where Judas then came, Judas the betrayer, brought the temple guard and they arrested Jesus. I'm sure heard the stories of how for the rest of that night Jesus had to endure mockery and scorn and ridicule and abuse. It was all being heaped upon him unrighteously. This was an illegal trial being held by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And during this time, you can read through that. They knew, we know, that they couldn't even keep their lies straight. I mean, it was so evident. They, they, I mean, they didn't even know how to lie well about it all. And so all these lies are going on and on, and it really didn't matter what was said or how many lies were declared. It didn't really matter. Because those that were in the religious authority, the chief priests, had decided in their heart already that they were going to crucify, that he was determined to die. They had already... They had already convicted him and sentenced him in their own heart. But there was no way they could do that. And why did they want to do that? It wasn't because of the evidence and what they said. The reason that the, Jew, the religious leaders wanted to kill him was because Jesus from his own mouth had declared himself to be the son of God. Jesus. And they knew what that meant. We try to sway that into all sorts of things, but a, a few weeks back, I, I very clearly showed you through the scriptures, Jesus was declaring himself to be one, the same as God. That's what that meant, son of God, and they knew that. That's why they wanted to kill him. But under Roman rule, they had no authority to declare the death penalty. Only the Roman authorities could do that. So the first thing they did that next morning at daybreak was they took Jesus and they brought Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate. You've know, heard that name before. 
And they took him before Pilate and they accused Jesus of rebellion and inciting riots. And church, I know that most of that is familiar to most of us. And, and I understand that. But today, I, what I want to do is I, wanna, I want you to go to, and if you have the church app, you can open it up. I have sermon notes that are in there. You can follow along with the scripture and fill in the blanks. And um, we'll, I'll put those, those up here. You can open your Bible to Luke chapter 23. What I want to do is I want to take a look today at the place in scripture where Pilate almost sets Jesus free. So starting in verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Praise God, they found him innocent. There, he had done nothing of, of which they had accused him. And Pilate knew that, and then he goes on and he says, neither has Herod found him to be guilty. Herod found him innocent as well, for he sent him back to us. And then he says this, and as you can see, see, Pilate knew that the religious leaders knew what they knew. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast talking about somebody who was to be released each time at the feast. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For a third time, the third time, he spoke to them saying, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found no, uh, him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the way in which your word describes what you went through for us. Lord, I pray that today it would, Lord, that it would pierce our hearts, that it would change us and transform us. I pray that we would have ears that we could hear, that we could receive, Lord, what you intended your word to bring to us today. I pray, Lord, that you draw us all to yourself. Draw us unto what you have done for us and that, Lord God, through us, we can be a reflection of that work to the world in which you've placed us. God, let your word do what no man can. And I pray, Lord, that you do that today in this place, in these people, in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One poet wrote this. He said, of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. And if that is true, then honestly, one of the most tragic words in all of the human language would be this word, almost. Almost. 
and all that almost represents. Almost, I almost, that I almost, you know, represents, almost represents all of those missed opportunities. I almost did it, but I didn't. I almost, in all of those places where we blew it, we, we, the chances we had, but we didn't take it. The opportunities that we had that we didn't do, or the things we knew we shouldn't, but we did it. And almost, and, and so many of our lives in this world are filled with that. Our, our lives exist oftentimes with huge portions, huge time frames, huge experiences of almost. I almost did this. I mean, it could fill the pages of our life. And to be quite honest, I believe that each of those pages that are filled with the almost will be places of regret. I almost remained pure. I almost stayed faithful. I almost climbed a mountain. I almost decided to get in shape. I almost quit. I almost closed the deal. I almost got there on time. Come on, we've all had all the, many of these almost experiences. Some of you live with that even now. I almost stayed home. Some of you almost did that last night. Almost. Well, I think that in the, that vein of what we're talking about, I think the biggest, the greatest, the most famous almoster of all time would have to be Pilate. And the reason is this. He almost released Jesus. Oh, he almost said, I dismiss these charges. This man is innocent. He has done nothing. He almost set him free. And I know we're thinking, well, then what would have happened? You know what? God is not in a box. If Pilate had made the choice to set him free, God would have found another way. God would have made sure his plan had been fulfilled and that things came to pass. I can promise you that. But my point today is that he almost set him free. And how would that change your perspective of him? How would that change your thought if Pilate had said, you know what, I don't care what you religious leaders say. I don't care what you Pharisees say. I don't care. I'm setting him free because it's the right thing. I, I really, many, I... I think that many would be calling him St. Pilate today. <laughs> and the point is this, he almost did it. But he didn't. He could have done it, but he didn't. He should have done it, but he didn't. He didn't. And honestly, that was his downfall. That's the tragedy that we all know and that's what we read about that's what he did. He almost 
set him free. He had the authority. He had the power. He had the word. All he had to do was speak the word. All he had to do was say it. And this guy, Jesus, would have been set free. Didn't matter what they said. Didn't matter what they did. Didn't matter how much they complained. They couldn't have stopped it because Pilate had the authority and he almost did it. But why didn't he? Listen to what the word says in verse 23. But with loud shouts and insistently demanded, or they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. You know what Pilate did? Is he listened to the voices around him. He listened to the voices that were shouting the loudest. He listened to the voices that were screaming in his ear. He listened to the voices of the culture that he was inundated with. He listened to the voices of those who, who were in front of him. He listened to the voices. Honestly, you know what? He listened to the voices of evil. He listened to the voice of Satan. We've heard those voices, haven't we? Come on, we've heard those voices many times, right? Come on. No, 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 that little voice. No, 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 go ahead. It's okay. <coughs> you deserve it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. She really likes you. Your wife will never find out. Your husband will never find out. Don't worry about it. Nobody knows where you are on the internet. Don't worry about it. Don't. Come on, here's the great, don't worry about it. Nobody will ever know. Who has ever ventured down a path that ended up in that kind of situation that didn't start with in their minds and in their hearts, nobody will ever know. That's what happens. And we start with that. And so Satan tempts us into those paths that we shouldn't be on. To go places we shouldn't go. To do things we shouldn't do. To say things that we shouldn't say. That little voice, that voice, and sometimes that voice is the one that shouts the loudest and therefore gets the most attention. But I want you to see this. Pilate, he didn't have to listen to those voices. Pilate had authority over those voices, yet he gave those voices authority over him by submitting to those voices, the voices of evil, the voice of destruction, the voice of culture. He didn't have to listen. He had authority. I hope you know as a born-again believer, you have authority. You don't have to say yes or no. You don't have to listen to those voices. It doesn't matter how loud they're screaming. You have authority. You don't have to listen to them. And this may hurt your feelings, but you choose to listen to them. And he didn't have to. Pilate didn't have to. There were other voices that he could have listened to. One of those voices that he could have listened to, he could have listened, he could have listened, he could have listened to the voice of his wife. Yep. 
How novel an idea would that have been? He could have. He should have. She was speaking some wisdom. She was bringing a word to him. He should have, but he didn't. She sent him a note in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 19, it says this, don't have anything to do with this, with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. He could have listened to her voice. Listen, he could have, and he almost did, but he didn't. There was also another voice he could have listened to. He could have listened to his own voice. Could have, he could have, listen, Pilate was no dummy. Pilate wasn't, he, he may not have been a godly man, but he was not a dumb man. He knew what was going on in this situation. He knew what they were up to. He saw through it very clearly, and he declares it. He knew that Annas and Caiaphas and the, the Jewish leaders that day, he knew that they were greedy. He knew that these people were corrupt. He knew that they were up to no good. He knew that they were trying to accuse an innocent man. He knew that. He was aware of all of that. And he could have listened to his own voice that was saying over and over and over, don't do it. This man's innocent. What has he done? He's innocent. He could have listened to his own voice of reason. Oh, come on. How many of us, when we make choices and decisions to do the things that we do sometimes, have got to completely deny the voice of reason? He didn't have to. You know what else he could have? He could have listened to, he had some sense of morality. It may not have been what we have or what we think is right, but he had some sense of morality. He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. He could have listened to that voice of morality. How many of us have to deny the voice of morality in our life to make some of the choices that we make to do the things we do? He could have also listened to the, the listen to this one. He could have listened to the voice of common sense oh man isn't it amazing how wise we can be while we're denying common sense I mean it's just amazing he could have listened to all of those voices he almost did he almost did but he didn't and he's not the only one to play this almost game. He's not the only one that goes through this. I hear it over and over again. Pastor, I almost made a decision today. Pastor, I almost responded to your message today. Pastor, I almost accepted Christ today. Pastor, I almost said, Jesus, here I am. Use me, send me. Pastor, I, I almost volunteered today. Almost. The Bible very clearly teaches us there is a no almost with God. There is no almost heaven. There is no almost place where we'll go. Listen, church, there is either heaven or hell. And in eternity, there is one or the other. There is no almost. There will be no changing mind. It is, it is one or the other. And that is up to you between what happens between you and God. 
That's not my decision. That's not my choice. But my encouragement to you is that if you have question or if you're apart from him in any way, shape, or form, today call upon his name. Reach out to him. Ask him unto your life. Receive the gift of grace and salvation that flows through that grace. He will. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. Because with him, listen church, with Jesus, there's no almost. He's all in. All in. And he's now asking you and I to do the same. As followers, to be the same. There's no almost. And, and honestly, for many people today, this very well, the same thing that Pilate struggled with is the same thing that many in the church struggle with. The almost syndrome. And it's a tragedy. So I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles and, and to take your Bibles out at home and read your Bible. Read this story. Read this story to your family. Read this story to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to your grandchildren. Read this story. Listen, I, I'm going to talk more and more and more about this as we get going on. But I think it's a shame today that we have left the preaching of the word to the pastor, that we have left whatever it is that we'll hear from the word to the pastor. Listen, your family, your kids, they should hear the word of God more from you than they hear it from me. Because if all you're hearing is the word of God from me, then you are spiritually weak. Okay, and I'm getting not a put down to me, but listen, who can eat once a week and find themselves strong? And your family, many of your families, are struggling and suffering and are weak because we refuse to take the authority that God has given us and stand up and declare the word of God in our lives, to declare the word of God in our homes, to declare the word of God to our families. Thus saith the Lord. Needs to be something that our families hear. God didn't say that as a wonderful wish list of things. He says, thus saith the Lord. I said it, therefore it shall be. Your family needs to hear the word of God from you more than they hear it from me. And to be quite honest, I'm going to make you have to start digging in. If you want to know some of these truths, I'm going to make you start digging into some of these things yourself because I'm not going to be complacent in the laziness of the church that won't dig in and find that word for themselves. And again, it's not that I don't love you, but listen, I'm with you once a week, a couple times a week if you come see me. Holy Spirit will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Anyway, enough chastising. Open your Bible and read it. And you'll continue in this story. And what you will read about is you will read about this thing. I know many of us have heard this. You will read about a crucifixion. Pilate, he came so close to freeing Jesus, that, but he didn't. He, he didn't do it. And so instead of freeing him, he turned them over to the Roman guards to do what these guys did. They were professional. They were crucifiers. These guys knew how to kill people. This was their job. Hey, what do you do? I crucify people. It was what they did. And so these guys, they knew how to do it. 
They knew how to crucify. They knew how to kill somebody and to do it. And, and Pilate said, gave them you know, the permission. They were, they were just doing a job. I know that's hard and difficult, but that's what they were doing. And so these, these soldiers, they marched Jesus down the road through the city and they took him up the hill. And, and again, he had help because he was so weakened at that point. They took him up to the hill, to the top. They took him to Golgotha. And they took him and they laid that cross down. They laid it out and then they took Jesus and they put him out on the cross. And they stretched his arms out as far as they could stretch. They took his feet and stretched them as far as they could. And they drove sharp spikes through his hands and through his feet. They nailed him to a cross so that he could not move. And then they took that cross and they, they put a couple of guys, I'm sure, on each side and they lifted him up and took some sticks from here and some ropes on the other side and began to push and began to pull until Jesus came up to the spot where the cross dropped into the hole that had been dug for and used for crucifixions many times before. Bam! And there he was, crucified. And he hung there on that cross, crucified. You know, I'm thinking that you would think that Jesus being on the cross, hands outstretched, bleeding, and all that he was going through, you would think that Annas and Caiaphas and, and the rest of the, the, the religious leaders, they would have been happy, you know. There he is. Praise God, he's up there. But the moment that cross went up, the moment that cross dropped into place and Jesus was jarred, they weren't even looking at that. What they saw, the only thing they saw was the sign above his head, Jesus, King of the Jews. They couldn't handle it. They stormed off. We're headed back to Pilate. They went back to Pilate because they were mad. They were angry that he had put that sign over the top of that, uh, the head of Jesus, King of the Jews. King of the Jews? And they went back and they came to the presence of Pilate. I wish that Pilate had been as firm and decisive earlier as he was here. As wishy-washy as he was with his treatment of Jesus, he was sure firm when they came rushing into his presence, protesting what was written above there. And he says, stop it. All of you, that's enough. What I have written, I have written. And it shall remain. King of the Jews. Now get out of here. Because he had the authority. And Jesus, he's on the cross, and, and there he, he hangs, literally, I mean, between heaven and earth. He, he's in this position that no one else had been in before, in, in this place that no one else had ever traveled before. And, and he's bleeding, and, and there, he's profusely sweating, I'm sure, from the cross and from all that he had been enduring and the blood and the tears that were flowing down his face as he tried to look without being able to clear them, as he tried to look through the burn at those who were there that day, to, to look around and to see the faces of those who were there that day. And, and it was a big crowd that was there. And many may have come because of the, hey, this is Jesus. Let's go see what's going to happen. Let's go see what's going to go on. Or, or again, maybe it's like oftentimes, and sorry to say, in church, where there's a big crowd because there's no football game. Or golf tournament or NASCAR race. 
Yeah, so let's go watch the crucifixions. And Jesus is there and he's looking around. And church, I, I, let me just tell you, this is just, honestly, I'm just being honest with you for a second here. This isn't towards anybody, but I have to pray before I stand in the pulpit because oftentimes I'm standing in the pulpit and I'm looking around and man, the voice that, you know, I talked about those voices, it's absolutely amazing. And I don't know how it happens because I'm not that smart and I don't, I, I, I like to focus on one thing at a time. I don't multitask as good as I used to. But it's amazing, I mean, how God can, I'm standing up here preaching talking, and, and the enemy's reminding me of all the faces of those who aren't here. I don't know why that happens. I hate it. My pastor, for years and years and years, I know he went through the same thing, because he used to tell me over and over and over again, Mark, focus on who's here, not who's not here. But it's so easy to see in my mind's eye all those who aren't here. And I promise, I pray against that. I don't like that, I don't want that, nor is that fair to those who are here. And I refuse to let that rule in me. So I pray every single time before I stand in the pulpit. Don't, don't Lord, control my mind. Let my mind be renewed by you. I don't wanna look that way. I wanna focus and give the attentions to those who are here today. But I can only imagine as Jesus stood there looking around. Look, I, I, again, you have no idea how much it encourages me when I'm preaching and I see you out there and you're shaking your head yeah, or saying amen or, yeah, I mean, or smiling at me. It, it, it's an encouragement. And there's times when I'm up here and I'm, I'm looking around and, and again, please, I'm not comparing myself with what Jesus was going through. I'm just talking about the human nature and Jesus was fully flesh. He lived as a man, fully God, fully man. And so, you know, again, it encourages me. So I look around for faces that are smiling at me. And because it, it encourages me. I look back to those who are shaking their head, who are into it. Those who are, I do, because it encourages me. I can imagine that Jesus needed a little encouragement. He's bloody and sweaty and he's trying to look through these eyes that are burning from the flow that's going through them. And he's up there looking around. Just a one, just show me some familiar faces. Show me some support. Show me something. I mean, come on. And to look around at the faces, to look for someone. Where, where are they? Where are the familiar faces? For Jesus. Where are they? Where are the friendly faces? Come on, where, where's Peter? Where's James? Where is Andrew? Where, where are they all? All my, my friends. Where, where are all my disciples? Most of the Gospels completely leave them out at this point. Don't even mention them, insinuating to us that they weren't there. And many believe they weren't. Only Luke, he's the only one, he mentions that they were there. But he says, they stood and watched from a distance. What? Why? And I believe it's the fulfillment of the word that 
Jesus had taught in James, or not James, in Mark chapter 4, and when he was teaching about the seed that was being sown. He talked about the seed being sown amongst the rocky places where it would grow fast and it would spring up. But as soon as the heat came, it would wither and die. As soon as the persecution came, as soon as the hardship came, as soon as difficulty came, as soon as I'm offended, as soon as I don't like it, as soon as somebody says something I don't care for, as soon as the pastor says something I don't agree with, as soon as the Bible tells us something that we don't like, the Bible tells us about this and we don't like that. The culture has a louder voice. And what do we do? We stand up, we grow up quick, but then the sun comes and the heat comes and the persecution comes and we wither up and we die. And what do we do? We stand back and we'll watch from a distance. And it is what so many do. Just like the disciples. You know who else was there? You know who was closest to Jesus at this time? The soldiers. They were the ones, they were the closest ones to him. And what are they doing? They're, they're, like, they're rolling dice or drawing straws or they're, they're gambling. They're just sitting there gambling. And every time I think about these guys, I look at them, I read about, I see a little bit of us in them. Don't you? I mean, you don't like it, but we do. Sometimes we are so close to the cross yet so far away. These guys were so close to the cross. They were so close to the cross that I bet they could hear the drops of blood as they hit the ground. They were so close that they literally almost got the blood of Jesus, the blood that was being shed for the forgiveness of their sins was falling right there. And they were rolling dice. They were right there in the middle of all of this and they could hear the cries of his pained flesh and didn't give him any attention. They were right there where at any moment they could have stopped what they were doing and looked up and they could have saw the face of the Messiah, the Savior, the one. They could have watched him die for their sins. Yet they were just too busy going about their own business. They were just too busy doing what only they could or what they wanted or what their jobs told them to do or what it was that was going on in their lives. All they did was the things they wanted to do that in that moment they were doing the things that they thought. You know what they were doing? They were working. They had a job to do. Their job caused them not to look to Christ because I got more important things to do. This is what we do. They were, they were concerned about what they could get, what they could gain. They were concerned about how the death of Christ could profit them. How, they could, how it could make things better for them. They, they didn't, listen, they didn't want what Jesus was giving. They wanted to take what Jesus had. So they rolled dice. They gambled to see who would get his robe, who would get his underwear. And so 
the scene is Jesus. He's on the cross. Blood and sweat is flowing. He's looking around, trying to find some familiar faces. I don't know who Luke got his information from or who he interviewed to find this out. But I imagine as Jesus was looking around in that situation, the disciples were watching from a distance. I can only imagine Jesus had no idea where they were. And so he's looking around for his disciples that are noticeably absent. He looks around at all these hostile faces that are all around him. All those that just didn't like him, came to watch him die. Looking down and all he sees is Roman guards gambling for his clothing. And, and in, in verse 34, it says that Jesus, he's praying. And he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive who? Father, forgive those soldiers that drove the nails into my hands and feet. They didn't know what they were doing. Father, forgive the soldiers that are ignoring me and rolling dice for my stuff. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive Pilate that he claimed me to be innocent, yet still he <coughs> sent me to death. Father, forgive, this, forgive Annas and Caiaphas and the others in the religious rulership. And Father, I ask that you would forgive those who would gather together in a small little church in Tooele, Utah in March of 2021 because it's for their sins that I hang here. Father, forgive them all. Forgive them all. Man, I don't know. I don't know that I could pray a prayer like that. I don't know that we could pray a prayer like that. We like to think we could. Peter thought he could. But he was found at a distance. I mean, look, come on. We, uh, how many of us could pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do? When we can't even forgive a neighbor whose dog poops in our yard. When we can't even forgive our wife, our husband, our children, those we're supposed to love. We, we, we have a hard time forgiving people in church because they said something that offended me. They said something that grinds against my thoughts or beliefs. They said something that I don't like. They said something, and I'm offended. And what do we do? We jump from this church to that church to that church because that one offended me. That one hurt me. That one said this about me. And we refuse to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. Come on, that's what church hopping's all about. 
I know there's times, please don't take me wrong, when God leads us to fellowship in other things and other places for certain reasons. But listen, if offense is your reason, go back and handle your offense first before you come here offended. Jesus very clearly taught us. Father, he taught us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Amen. And then in the Gospels, if you look at the four Gospels, if you look at all of them and read through them all together, as I went through them all this past week, um, you'll find that there are seven places or seven things that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross. Seven things that he said. The first three were said before the darkness. Father, he said, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He responded to one of the thieves and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And then he looked at Mary, his mother, and John, the apostle that was there with her, and said, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And suddenly, darkness came over the land. The skies begun to rumble. The lightning and the thunder began. The wind kicked up. In fact, it got so crazy, the ground even begun to shake beneath them. And in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the noise, in the midst of everything that was going on in that moment, in the midst of it all, Jesus says, Eli, Eli, Shabbatini. And you know what? Those who stood at a distance they could barely hear him. Those who stood at a distance couldn't really understand what he was saying. Isn't it amazing in our lives how when we choose to stand at a distance, it makes it really difficult to hear the voice of Jesus? Isn't it, isn't it also so easy when we stand at a distance and try to hear Jesus, when we're way back trying to listen, how easy it is to misunderstand what he's really saying? Come on. Because those who were at a distance, they couldn't quite hear him. And they thought, what, did he, wait a minute. Did he say that Elijah's coming? Yeah. <laughs> Elijah, great. Let's wait for Elijah to come. Elijah will straighten all this out. Those who were closest to him, they heard what he said. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? God, why have you turned away? Why have you left me alone? One version says, why have you abandoned me? The reason he spoke that is because of your sins. Because of the sins of the world. Because of your personal sins. Because of our corporate sins. Because of my sin. God the Father, because of those sins being placed upon Christ to bear our sins because we couldn't. He took those sins and God the Father turned his face from him. And that was more painful to him than any of the beating he took along the way because this was the first time in all of eternity past and ever in eternity future that this had ever happened. Jesus had never experienced this. This was the first time that had ever gone on. And it was because of our sin that Jesus bore our punishment and he took it upon himself. And then the last three things he says, very simply, he says, I thirst. 
He said, it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And church, then it was over. Jesus was dead. All their hope was gone. I thought he was going to be the king. I thought he'd come to rescue us. How can he rescue us while he's dead? Great. Now everything we planned on is over with. Now there's no hope. There's nothing that we can do. What is... And they were all dismayed. They were all upset. They were all trying to figure out, well, now what? Now who do we turn to? I wonder how many were wondering, maybe those religious leaders weren't all wrong. Well, great, now there's no hope. What they didn't know was that in that moment, the greatest victory of all time was being won. The greatest victory had been won. The greatest victory had been purchased for you and for me. There had been, in that moment, the greatest thing that had ever happened in all eternity. Jesus Christ had died for you and for me, and he won a victory. And when, that, when, when they drug him up onto that hill that looked like a skull, Everything that God had worked for, everything that God had planned, everything that God had prophesied since Genesis chapter 3, in every prophet's mouth that had come forth in prophecy, it was all in that moment being fulfilled. It was all coming to pass. God's plan was all coming together through the death, through the burial, and three days later, through the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Come on, amen. And church, I want to finish with this because this is the most important part of it all. Because this is the message of Calvary. This is the message of our Redeemer. You know, I, I, in all of this, the truth is that there is nothing more consistent in life than the inconsistencies of life. I mean, uh, you've heard it said, life's like a salad, a toss salad. You stick your fork in, you're just not sure what's going to come out. <laughs> life's like a roller coaster with all the twists, the turns, the ups, the downs. You really just don't know what's going to happen next. And life is filled with these places of inconsistency. But Calvary says that we have a God who will take all of those inconsistencies. We have a God who will take all of that brokenness. A God who will take all of that hopelessness. A God who will take all of the broken pieces of our shattered hearts. A God who will take all of the hurt, the pain, and the brokenness of a, of a, a hole-filled past. And he'll take all of those broken pieces and all of those broken places and bring them all together and begin to wind them together and create a beautiful tapestry out of that. Yeah. Our God will make something beautiful because that's what he planned. God said, you, 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 each one, you are his masterpiece. And you have been created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do. God will take all of the brokenness, all of the demonic attack, all of the places where you have lost, all the places where hope has died, and he'll begin to bring it all together to create a masterpiece because that is what the message of Calvary is all about. 
that he will bring together what has been broken and what has been defiled, that he will take and do in you what he did through Jesus, that there is a message for each and every one of us, and you need to hear this. Because even for Jesus, and we need to understand that in this world, there are days when the sun shines. And man, isn't it a crazy thing how the very next day, and it's pouring rain. One day, everything seems to just be falling into place. And the next day, everything seems to be just falling apart. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to this. It, one day, we're young and healthy. And I'm telling you, it is like the next day. And the doctor brings bad news. The inconsistencies of life. It's the only consistency we have. But Jesus says this, through the message at Calvary, it doesn't matter. If you have fully committed your life to follow me, if I am the Lord and the Savior of your life, then you will find righteousness and goodness and victory, not defeat. You will find hope, not hopelessness. You will find your despair is being replaced with eternal hope. You will find your sorrows being turned to laughter. You will find your mourning being turned to dancing. Your joy will come in the morning. Your joy will come because that is the message of Calvary. Amen. That's what he did for us. Worship team, would you come on back up, please? So church, our prayer today, our, our prayer really ought to be, God, help us. Never, Lord God, let us look at the cross with complacency. Never let us look at this symbol that we wear around our neck and, and Lord, let it just be something that becomes costume jewelry. God, never let us look at the cross and not see the one who died for me to what it represents. Let it bring a tear to my cheek. Let it bring a brokenness to my heart. Let it bring, Father God, a move in my soul that I might know, Lord God, that you truly did it for me. Let us never come to the cross of Calvary and look casually on that. Let, let us not look to the cross at Calvary and almost be moved. And instead, go ahead and turn away and go back to life as usual. And let me tell you, this is happens, there, I've never been in a service where this did not happen. I, I know it, I, I know that I know. This has never not happened. It's the ultimate tragedy. It's what breaks a pastor's heart. And I'll tell you what, most, I, I go home from every service with a sense of brokenheartedness. Because in every service, this one included, there are those in every worship service, people that are almost ready to make a decision. People that are almost ready to say yes. People that are almost ready to say, Lord, I surrender all. Well, Pastor Mark, isn't it enough to say, I surrender some? Or I surrender most? I surrender a lot.
the truth is is that those are just another way of saying I almost surrendered all I almost did Lord I almost did and there are many in every worship service that will leave I almost said I surrender all I'm going to follow you Jesus I almost did but they don't You know, don't let that be you today. Don't you care what the voices around you are trying to say right now? What this one might think or that one might think? Who cares what people think? It's just another voice to try to sway you from doing what God is wanting, what he's calling and asking you to do. Others are here today that are like those soldiers. They're just, you know, just casting dice at the feet of Jesus. Just going about our business. Taking care, just just working our job, you know. We're just busy with all these things, doing all this other stuff. And the truth is, is that God doesn't want us to be so self-absorbed with everything else, so worldly bound that we are of no heavenly value. Because what God is looking for is that in the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of all that's going on, to stop and look up. Our redemption draws near. Don't leave this place the same. Those soldiers had an opportunity. Don't leave this place without letting the message sink in to bring change and transformation to your life. Don't leave the same. Don't leave this place so near and yet still so far away. Because today, like in every other service, We offer an invitation to you. It's not my invitation. Jesus gives me the privilege to stand before you and on his behalf invite you to a wedding. He's chosen you. He wants you. Because you've earned it? No. Because he loves you. And he's extended through me an invitation for you to come to Christ. To receive Jesus, not almost, but to truly make a statement. I'm praying that those that are here today, that are almost there, will not respond like the religious did, that they won't respond like Pilate did, that they won't respond like the soldiers did. But that you'll stop and you'll, you'll look and listen and hear the voice of God. That you'll hear what He's saying to each and every one of your hearts. That you need to make a decision today. That this is the day. That this is the time to stop being almost ready. And in the midst of it, to stop listening to the voices that are all around you. And the things that are going on. To stop being distracted from the things of this world. You are an ambassador and God has come. And His desire is to set you free. To come to forgive your sins. And the invitation of Jesus is there. The invitation to make Him. To let Him be the Lord and the Savior of your life. And that is up to you. Because Jesus stands today with his arms outstretched and says, come unto me. He knows some of you are are heavy laden. He knows some of you are burdened. He knows some of you are hurt. He knows some of you are broken. He knows some of you need to be wound back together. He knows that. 
And his hands are outstanding. He says, come into me just as you are. And he says, I will give you rest. For the life of me, I cannot understand how anybody could reject that invitation. I don't know how anybody could say, well, I almost did it, and walk out those doors and roll the dice with eternal life. I don't know how people do that, but some do, many do. I pray that you will not. I pray that today will be the end of your almost. And that today you will answer yes. That you will say yes. And that you'll come to him. That you'll come and you'll make a commitment to Christ. That you'd come and fill this altar. That for the first time, you could sing this song without an almost. Jesus, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. And I'm gonna ask you in this service today, I'm gonna ask you today to make a bold stand. We're not gonna sneak in the back door of heaven. God is looking for us to be bold. And oftentimes, I leave it up to you to be personal in your seat. But today, I just feel the need to do this. That some of you, you need to stand up. And as we sing this song, you need to get out of your seat and you need to come up here to the front. And you need to make a declaration before God. Not before me, not before anyone else here, but a declaration before God that says, I surrender all, Lord. to do that today we're going to open this altar up and ask that as we stand together and as we sing this song that you would step out and you would boldly come and you would stand before the Lord and you would give him your heart today not almost but fully and completely amen come on let's all stand together and if you need to step out today I want you to step out and I want you to come and I want you to pray and I want you to give God your heart today And all to Jesus I surrender all To Him I freely I will ever love And trust Him in His presence
I hope and pray that that be the decision of each and every one of your hearts and minds that today would say, Lord God, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. Amen? Come on, give me a shout of praise for all that Jesus has done, for all that God has done. We praise Him today. Thank you, Lord. Listen, as the redeemed, as those who are fully surrendered, you are released to go be the church. Go out there and let your light shine. Go let your light reflect the work that God has done in you. God bless you. Have a beautiful day today. Celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into your life. God bless you. I love you. Bring a friend next week. Don't forget it. God bless.